We're beginning this new series. We're starting today in John chapter six. If you have your Bible, turn with me. Otherwise, it's gonna be on the screen. John six, I, in the uh, early 2000s, when I was, well, I won't tell you how old I was, but uh, I became pastor of, of South Avenue Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas, a wonderful church with some amazing people who are still important to us today. And one of those people was a man named John Phelps. Now, this was a very blue collar church, but Mr. Phelps was a little different. He was a successful businessman. He'd done very well for himself and he was extremely generous. And one day, you know, that, I'll tell you, it was 2006, my football team, Carrie and I, the team we follow, the Houston Cougars, actually won their conference championship. And it had been a long time since we'd been in any good in anything. And so uh, we were excited and the church knew we were excited. They were, they were going to the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. Now, this was at a time in our lives when that church was able to pay us enough to, to live on, but we're, there was no way we could afford to go to Memphis for a bowl game. But at the next Sunday, when I saw Mr. Phelps, he said, we want to send you to that game. My wife and I want to just send you there. So my secretary is going to call you tomorrow and you just make all the arrangements through her, which just blew me away. So the next day, the secretary calls me and I, I made those arrangements. I mean, I felt like suddenly I had money, right? You know, so I got a flight that would get us there in time for the game and, and rented a car and and a hotel, and then you know the flight that would take us home the next day by noon. And I thought, man, this is great, and it was. But when we got home, and I saw the next time I saw Mr. Phelps, he said, "Did you enjoy it?" I said, "Yeah, it was great." He said, "I'm surprised you didn't stay for a few days, make a vacation out of it." And I thought, well, I didn't know I could. <laughs> I didn't know I had that option. I mean, you promised to send me to the game. I. I, I kind of felt selfish asking for anything else. And he said, no, you, you, you should have got, go get you some Memphis barbecue, go to Beale Street and hear the blues. I mean, see the town. Honestly, we don't know anything about Memphis other than the way to get to the stadium. So, you know, it, it was, I, I was in this experience of realizing, okay, this was great, but I wish I'd known there could have been more. See, I, I'm speaking to a lot of people who I assume, in fact, in many cases I know, but I assume you believe that Jesus Christ is able to save your soul and take you to heaven when you die. And if you believe that, you're right. In fact, he's the only one who can. And that's why a lot of you are here, because he has saved you, because you know that you have eternal life through him and him alone. But I think that for a lot of us, it's sort of like with Mr. Phelps. Yeah, he, he'll get us there. We can count on that. We didn't know he had all this other stuff for us. We didn't know he was willing to give us so much else. But unlike Mr. Phelps, he's actually told us. See, if all you know about Jesus is what you learned in Sunday school growing up, you may miss some of the best parts of him. And that's why I'm so excited about this series today as we look at the things Jesus said about himself in the Gospel of John, those I am statements that you've probably heard every single one of, but maybe never really drilled down into what they really mean. When you really see what Jesus was saying about yourself, some of you are gonna sit back and go, oh, I had no idea. I had no idea I could ask the Lord for that. I had no idea he had that planned for me. It's gonna change life for so many of us once we really know who Jesus is and what he can do for us. So John 6, I am the bread of life. That's our first one we're looking at today. And this chapter starts with one of Jesus's most famous miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. You've heard that story, right? 
Except it wasn't 5,000. It says 5,000 men. It doesn't say how many women and children there were. Bible scholars will say, chances are there were as many as 20,000 people there that day. That's a big crowd of people. I've never spoken to 20,000. I've certainly never fed 20,000. At the end of that miracle, the people were so amazed at what they'd seen, they began to whisper and, and talk to one another and say, this guy needs to be our king. And in fact, there was talk of, of starting a revolution, a, a violent overthrow of the Roman government so that Jesus could be king of the nation. Now, 5,000 full-grown adult men are probably not enough to overthrow the Romans, but it's certainly enough to kill a bunch of them. It's certainly enough to cause a big ruckus, and maybe others would have joined in as well. Jesus did not want that. That's not what he came to do. And so when he, when he heard this talk, he sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee back to their home base of Capernaum, and he said, I'll meet you there. But he went up on top of a mountain to pray. He got away from the crowd to stop this idle talk of violence. Now, in the middle of the night, Jesus knew that the storm had come and his disciples were having a hard time rowing in the middle of that storm and all those waves. And they look out and they see him walking on the water towards them. Jesus gets into the boat. And as soon as he gets into the boat, the storm ends and they're immediately at Capernaum. Now, the next day, the, the crowd of people, those 20,000, had walked the long way around the sea and they'd gotten to Capernaum and they found Jesus and they said, how did you get here? The last time we saw your disciples were getting on the boat, but you were going on top of a mountain. How did you beat us over here? Now, as he does so often, you may have noticed this when you read the gospels, Jesus, when he's asked a direct question, doesn't answer it. Instead, he redirects them to what they should have been talking about, what they should have asked. So in verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So what is he talking about? Book of John often refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. The point it's making is Jesus, when he fed those people, he wasn't just giving them food. He was trying to give them a sign of something bigger. He was trying to show them there's more to this life than the things you can see. And what he says to them here is, you missed the point entirely. All you knew is you were hungry and you got fed. And you came to me not because you learned from that experience, but because you want more food. You're missing the whole point. You're looking for things in life that don't really sustain you. Now, this isn't what the people wanted to hear. They were acting toward Jesus the way we act today toward politicians. Give us what we want and then we'll vote for you. Give us what we want, not necessarily what we need. Give us what we ask for, agree with us, follow the polls, do what the polls say, and we'll keep on putting you into office. Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm here to do. I've got something better in mind for you. And the people don't like this. So they come back with this response. Well, okay, you fed us once, big deal. Moses fed our forefathers in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, what's he talking about? Some of you know, we're going to talk about Exodus this summer. I'm going to do a series, Lord willing, on, on Exodus this summer. And there's a story in Exodus about how when the, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, they, they had been slaves for 400 years, and they were trekking across this desert to get to the promised land. For 40 years, they woke up every morning in a place where there was no food. It could not sustain plant or animal life. So what were they to eat? Every morning they'd wake up and there was some white flaky substance on the ground. They called it manna because that was Hebrew for what is it? 
literally true. And they would take this white flaky manna and they would bake it into bread. So, so what they're saying is, look what Moses did, man. Every day for 40 years, he gave us bread. You gave it to us once. So we're not that impressed with you anymore. Now here's Jesus's response. And I know this sounds very inside baseball, but you're gonna have to listen, pay close attention to what Jesus says here, because this is what we wanna focus on. This is what shows us what he's come to do for us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now skip over to verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus is saying in response to their accusation that you're no Moses, he says, okay, well, three things. Number one, Moses didn't give your forefathers bread. God gave them bread. Whereas I am able to give you bread myself anytime I choose. He's saying I'm more powerful than Moses was, which is a big deal. Moses was literally the founder of Judaism. Moses was the, the prophet they looked up to more than any other. And he's saying, yeah, I'm, I'm better than Moses. I have more power than he. He didn't put manna on the ground. God did that. I'm able to give you not just physical bread. I'm able to give you something that lasts even longer and, and is much more powerful. I'm able to give you life itself. Now, that was a big, big claim. And in fact, that term life, when he says, I'm able to give you life, to bring you life from above, there's two Greek words for the word life. We have one English word for it, right? Two Greek words. One word is bios, B-I-O-S. That's where we get the term biology from. Bios means life that's just existence. If you're breathing, if your heart is beating, if you, you've got your vital signs, you have bios. But zoe is the second Greek word, Z-O-E. Anybody know any girls named Zoe? Yeah, it means life in Greek but it doesn't just mean existence. Zoe means the good life. It means life more abundant. It means the life you've always wanted. It's, it's sitting back and having everything you've ever needed and knowing this is the life, that's Zoe. So the point I'm making is this crowd was there looking for bios from Jesus and Jesus says, well, I wanna give you Zoe. The crowd was there saying, feed us. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to feed you with something that will sustain you forever. And they weren't interested. The second thing Jesus is saying is the bread your forefathers ate in the desert didn't last. The bread I can give you will last forever. See, that, that's the whole thing. Jesus is saying, there's a reason why you had manna in the desert every morning, because it didn't fill you. It filled you for a time and then it went away. What I will give you lasts forever. I grew up in the country. My grandpa uh, on my mom's side, uh, my mom's dad was a dairy farmer, farmer rancher. And uh, sometimes in the summer or over Christmas break, she'd send me over there for the day to help him out, teach me the value of hard work. It worked. Uh, sometimes I'd be helping him uh, seed a hayfield or fix a fence or, or something like that. And every time the same thing would happen, 10 in the morning, my grandma would come pulling up in her pickup truck. And she'd always have some kind of little snack for us, crackers, or if I was really lucky, these little brown sugar cookies she used to bake. Nobody can bake them like her. But always, 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 she had Dr. Pepper. See, my grandpa was a Dr. Pepper man. He was a Christian and a Baptist and a Dr. Pepper man in that order, okay? He believed in the power of that brown liquid from Waco, Texas. He believed that if you drank some at 10 o'clock and two o'clock and four o'clock, because that's what it said on the bottle, some of you are old enough to remember, it would keep you going through the day. And just to be safe, he drank it at breakfast, lunch, and dinner too. 
And he swore it could, no matter how tired you are, it will give you enough energy to make it to the end of the day. And he's right. I mean, caffeine's a wonder drug. Maybe your caffeine vehicle of choice is coffee or tea or Coca-Cola or something else, but it will give you a surge of energy. It will give you a jolt, right? Remember that drink? But it doesn't last. There's always a crash. See, Jesus is saying, what I give you is life that lasts forever. It, it doesn't just have power, it has endurance. And then the third thing, the third thing Jesus see, says is a little harder to see. Look again at verse 33. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who is he talking about? Okay, we're in church. Jesus, he's talking about himself. Yeah, the answer is always Jesus in church, remember? So yeah, he's saying, he's saying, when Moses gave them manna, he was sharing a gift from God. But when Jesus came into the world, he was sharing himself. When Moses gave them manna, he was giving them something, but Jesus was giving them himself. He was willing to die for them. What he's saying is, I have more power than Moses. I have more endurance than Moses because what I give you doesn't go away. And I have more love than Moses because as great as he was, he didn't die for you. I'm willing to die for you. I will give my life for you. And immediately the people started to say, who does this guy think he is? I mean, nobody compares themselves to Moses. We know where this guy's from. Some of us know his parents. How can he say the things he says? And so Jesus responds to them in verse 45. Whereas you and I in that situation, we would probably be likely to try to sell ourselves to the crowd and say, okay, okay, don't, don't, don't be offended. Let me tell you why I said what I said. Here's what Jesus says to them. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you hear what he's saying? The reason you don't believe in me is because you're not listening to the Father. If you were walking in step with God, you'd know who I was. You'd believe in me. The fact that you're rejecting me right now is a sign that you're not in tune with our God, the God you claim to believe in. And believe it or not, that didn't bring them around. That didn't endear them to him. And so their response in verse 66 is, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So this is the point at which Jesus, his crowd starts to diminish. He'll never again preach to 20,000 people at a time. In fact, the crowd of people following him will grow smaller and smaller from now until Good Friday. Why? Not just because he claimed to be greater than Moses, but because he was offering them something they didn't want. They wanted bios. He wanted to give them zoe. They wanted bread. He wanted to give them bread of life. They wanted their earthly needs met. They wanted a God they could boss around. By the way, be careful because that's the version of Christianity a lot of popular preachers sell you. A God you can boss around. A God who is at your beck and call. A God who exists to give you what you want. Jesus says, no, I, I have something better in mind for you. I have something far greater. I have, I have the true bread that can sustain you. Why don't you trust me? I want you to see verse 67. It's, it's on the screen. It's, to me, it's one of the most poignant verses in the whole Bible. Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and says, do you want to go away as well? And you can hear the, the sadness in his voice when he says that. Sad, not because he likes being a celebrity and it makes him upset that no longer will he have these big crowds. That's not what Jesus was about at all. I mean, he lived for all eternity with the adoration of millions of angels. He didn't need 20,000 people following him. 
He was sad because every one of those 20,000 was someone he created. And every single one of them who turned away from him was a soul that he loved, that he had plans for, that he was willing to die for, who was now at that point saying, I don't want what you can give me. And so that's why he says to these 12 who've been with him since the very beginning, are you going to leave too? And here, one of the few times Peter actually knows the right thing to say. Verse 68, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But this should make us all ask ourselves the question, if I had been there right then and I had suddenly come to realize Jesus didn't come here just to make me happy and well and rich and and full he has a better plan for me. He has another plan for me. If that, if you'd learned that at that point, would you have been like those 12 disciples who stuck by him or like those 20,000 who turned and walked away? Let that question sit with you for just a second. Now, let me ask you a different question. It's a little thought experiment for you. What if, what if God came and appeared to you personally today and said, I will give you one thing, Anything you ask for, one request. He did this once for Solomon. You can, you can see it in, in the book of 1 Kings. What would you ask for? What would it be? One thing you could ask of God that he promised he would not deny. What would it be? See, the answer, your answer to that question reveals a lot about your heart. Maybe you're a young person right now and you've got big dreams and you say, okay, God, what I really want is that I would get to do this thing that I love that I dream of doing and that I would make a good salary at it, I'd be able to sustain myself and become very successful at at following my dream. Or maybe you would say, I I just wanna get to the place financially where I can afford certain things that I think I need in order to be happy. If I can take care of my family to this extent, then I know know I'll be happy, I'll have everything I need. Or maybe it's that your body is falling apart in some way and you want God to heal you, you wanna be able to do the things you used to do. Or maybe you've got a loved one who is dying and you want them to be rescued and not to die or them to come back to full health. You pray for healing. And if that could just happen, you would never ask God for anything ever again. Or maybe, maybe you're a single person and you're saying, you know, Lord, if I could just meet somebody who has this and this and this and, and, and they're this kind of person and they fell in love with me and I with them, I know I would be as happy as can be because that's what I need. Or maybe you're a person who's already married and you say, Lord, what I really want, what I really miss is I wish my, my spouse and I could love each other like we once did and it could be the way it was when we first got married. Then I know I would be happy. Or maybe you've got kids and you'd say, what I really want is for all my kids to be healthy and happy and successful. And if I know that they're happy and successful and healthy, then I'll be happy and I won't want a thing in the world. Let me just say, all of those things are good. If any of those things happen for you, you should thank God for them because they're gifts from heaven. I will rejoice for you. But if the desire of your heart is any of those things, Then Jesus would say to us what he said to the crowd in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. See, I'm assuming that none of you would ask for world domination or for the the, the crushing death of your enemies. I'm assuming none of you are that evil, but even if you ask for good things, you're working for the food that perishes because you're revealing in your heart, this is what I really need. This, if, if I only had this, And Jesus says, no, that's food that goes away. See, three things about those things. Number one, they don't have the power that you think they have. 
When John Rockefeller was the wealthiest man on earth, someone asked him once, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does a man need in order to be happy? And his answer was three words, a little more. No matter how much you have, you need a little more. I know people think, especially when their kids are young and even as they get older, if only all my kids could be happy and successful, then I could be happy and I wouldn't want anything in the world. But you know what happens when that happens? I've seen it. That parent who's invested all of their hopes and dreams into these children, they feel this sense of emptiness. Now they're glad their children are doing well, but at the same time, you know, I remember the days when I was the center of their universe. And that brought me love and identity and, and joy. And now they're off with their own kids and their own spouses and their own dreams and hopes. And, and I'm just an afterthought and, and I'm happy for them, but now I don't have anything. It doesn't have the power you think it will. I know a lot of you who are younger think, yeah, but if I could just do something that I love, this thing that I'm really good at and that I enjoy, if I could get paid for that so that I could live a happy and successful life in the field that I love, then I know I'd be happy. You know what? Let me just testify. I am, I am literally doing my dream job right now. This, this church is, is awesome. I, I want to be the pastor of this church until I die or Jesus comes back and y'all pay me well enough that I'm more than able to take care of my family. And yet... If this job was the best thing in my life, I would be miserable because this job is not enough. It doesn't have the power, nor does yours, nor does anything else you could ask for. Doesn't have the power you think it does. Number two, these things don't have endurance. None of them last forever. Take, for example, healing. If you're on death's door and suddenly you're healed, hallelujah, that's amazing. God has done a great thing and you should praise him for it. But you know what? I hate to say this. You're gonna get sick eventually anyway. You were going to die of something. Maybe not of this, but of something down the road. Healing doesn't last. There is one healing that lasts forever. You know what it is? It's when Christ returns and our bodies come up from the ground and we get those new bodies. That's our only permanent healing is the resurrection of the dead. And the same can be said of success, careers, money, people. If we build our lives on any of these things, we're building our lives on a house of cards. Jobs get downsized. Money blows away when some idiot miss. miss you know, makes a mistake in the stock market. People let you down. People break your heart. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never fails. See, all those things are like Dr. Pepper. They can give you a jolt, but they don't last. Jesus is the bread of life. He satisfies without end. They don't have power. They don't have endurance. And they don't have love for you like Jesus does. None of those things loves you like Jesus does. There's two times in this chapter that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The second one is in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What did he just say? He says, this is why I am the bread of life because I'm willing to die. Your job won't die for you. Your money won't die for you. Your body, no matter how good a shape you put your body into, it's gonna die someday, but not for your sins. Your loved ones, your spouse, that dream person you hope you meet someday, they're not gonna die for your sins. Jesus did. Jesus has. It's not mere talk. He has laid down his life for us. 
So in the end, the only right answer to the question of if I could ask God for anything, what would it be? The only right question is, Lord, I want to know you better and love you more. That's it. And you're like, okay, that's the church answer. No, listen to me. The reason why you should ask for that is because deep down inside, the problem that's causing you unhappiness, the problem that's stealing life from you, it's not your marriage, and it's not your illnesses, and it's not your lack of money, and it's not your kids, and it's not anything else you can name. It's your sin. It's the sin that separates you from God, the source of life. And there's one person who can heal that breach, and that's Jesus. And the day you first come to him and say, Lord, my, my problem is that I need you, and I don't have you. My problem is that I'm a sinner and I need to get reconciled to you. Lord, my problem is I've tried everything else and it didn't work and you are the source of life. The first time you come to him and say, please come into my heart and make me a new person, that's the day you're saved. I don't care what church you grew up in or, or what you believe growing up or what you've done or haven't done. The day you come to Jesus and say, I need you is the day you're saved and you're saved forevermore. He never lets go of you. And if you haven't done that, I really want to talk to you when this is over. I'll be standing across the atrium under this little banner that says next steps. Come and say, tell me more about that. Or if you're at home, call me or email. Let us know. We want, to, we want to follow up with you. But for a lot of people who are listening to me right now, you'd say, yeah, Jeff, I did that. And yet, again, we're like Carrie and me going off to Memphis and coming back and realizing, oh, we missed, we missed a lot of it. I mean, we lost the football game even. You know, we miss the opportunity for more. How many of us, when we stand before Jesus at the gates of heaven, will he welcome us with open arms and then say, I'm so glad you're here. This is what I died for. I'm glad you're with me forever. But why'd you miss so much of what I wanted to give you? You settled for so much less so much less than I died to bring you. Why did you settle for chasing after the world's scraps instead of the feast that I was able and willing and longing to give you every single day? Why didn't you just trust me to be the bread of life? See, what we do is we try to live on dessert. And hey, I'm the first one to say dessert is great. I mean, I could, I, I, I could eat dessert every day. In fact, I, I long to, but it can't sustain you. You need real food. And all these other things that we chase after are dessert. They can be good. They can be blessings. They can be gifts from God that can cause you to rejoice, but they can't sustain you. They don't have power. They don't have endurance, and they don't love you. Only Jesus does. He is the bread of life. Will you trust him enough to make him your food, what you live on, and to say, Lord, more than anything else, here's what I want. I want to know you better and love you more. If you give me these other things, great, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct my life in such a way that my whole goal is to know you better and love you more. Are you willing to do that today? If so, let's tell him so.